Have you ever been really excited about sharing something? Maybe you heard a good joke or a moving story and you could not wait to tell that to someone else. Well, that's sort of how I feel this morning because what we find in Ruth chapter 2 is just that good. And we're going to jump right into it this morning. We don't, we've got a lot to cover and we don't have any time to waste. So we're going to jump right into Ruth chapter 2. But uh, last week we began a four-week study on the Old Testament book of Ruth. And Ruth is a short book about a quarter of the way uh, through the Bible, uh, tucked away between Judges and 1 Samuel. Joshua judges Ruth, 1 and 2 Samuel. And I want to do my best to kind of here at the beginning draw us into this story, to set the stage, to set the context for what takes place in Ruth chapter 2, just in case you weren't here last week or in case you've forgotten since last week. Uh, maybe you've slept since last week or taken a test since last week or whatever the circumstance. But I want us to draw ourselves into what's taking place here because really the details of this story are what makes this story incredible. And so Elimelech, this Israelite man from Bethlehem, sets out with his wife, Naomi, and their two sons, Malon and Kilion. And they leave Bethlehem in a time of famine, and they go to the land of Moab. And while they're there in Moab, Malon and Kilion, the two sons, marry Moabite women. Now this is absolutely crucial to our understanding of this story because Israel had a history of not getting along with Moabites. Um, in fact, the Moabites were descendants of Moab who himself was the offspring of an incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughter uh, in Genesis 19. So throughout their history, the Moabites were characterized by immorality and worshiping false gods. So when we as readers come into this story in Ruth chapter 1, and, and we see that, that this family, Elimelech and Naomi and their two sons, have gone to live in Moab, and the sons have married Moabite women, this is not regarded as a positive thing. And from there, as we continue in chapter 1, the story continues to spiral downhill. Elimelech, the father, dies. Naomi is left as an elderly widow with uh, her two sons and their uh, wives, and before long, the two sons die as well. And so Naomi, this elderly widow, is left with two daughters-in-law, foreign women, Moabite women, neither of which have any children. And so Naomi speaks to these daughters-in-law. She's going back to Bethlehem. Really, she has no choice. She has no family left, so she's got to go back. She's going back to her roots, back to Bethlehem. And she makes every attempt to, to persuade these two daughters, uh, Orpah and Ruth, to stay in Moab, to stay with their families, to restart and to make a name for themselves there. And she convinces Orpah to stay, but Ruth will not stay. She clings to her, her mother-in-law, Naomi, and, and promises to go with Naomi wherever she goes and to stay with her wherever she stays. And so Naomi and Ruth set out from Moab back to Bethlehem. 
And the situation is bleak for Naomi. She has no children. She has no husband. She has no grandchildren. She's an elderly widow in a day and a time in which it was not a good thing to be a widow with no children. And so Naomi and Ruth enter Bethlehem, and they are in need of two very important things. Number one, food. And number two, family. Their immediate need was food, someone to provide and to protect them. But also, they were in need of family. They were in need of the survival of Elimelech's family, someone to carry on the family name. And Naomi was very aware that she had these great needs. And we see a picture of that at the very end of chapter 1. So look at the end of chapter 1, beginning in verse 20, uh, to kind of set the stage for what's going to take place in chapter 2. But Naomi and Ruth, they come back into Bethlehem. And they're greeted by the people living there in Bethlehem. And this is Naomi's response, verse 20 of chapter 1. Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Naomi, we're told, means pleasant. Don't call me pleasant. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. And the name Mara means bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune Upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter in law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Now we're given one small glimmer of hope in chapter one. Very small. This is the only hint of hope in chapter one, and it's found right there at the very end. Verse 22 that they arrive in Bethlehem just as the barley harvest harvest is beginning. But as the rest of this story unfolds, this glimmer of hope becomes increasingly bright. And we'll see this morning from God's word that God's unfailing love shines brightest in the midst of apparent hopelessness. God's unfailing love shines brightest in the midst of apparent hopelessness. And we're going to walk through chapter 2 this morning and some of the details that are here. And I hope that you'll, you'll try to picture yourself there and the tension that unfolds because it's absolutely crucial to our understanding of this story. But before we look at it, would you go to God in prayer with me? Father God, we come before you now and we thank you for your word. And we come expectant this morning for you to speak to us through your word. So speak to us now by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, Ruth chapter 2. We're going to dive right in. Ruth chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. The Bible reads this. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech, a man of standing whose name was Boaz. Now this is a little side note in the story. This is not dialogue, you know this. This is the narrator or the author of the book of Ruth. And by the way, we're not 100% sure who that, who that was, was a man or woman, there's debate. Uh, it's obviously in the Bible, so it is uh, the word of God. But whatever the case, the author of Ruth includes this side note in order to introduce us as readers to this new character. 
And he's painted in a very positive light. We, we don't have any indication that at this point in the story that Ruth even knows who Boaz is. And this becomes increasingly clear as the rest of the story unfolds. But what are we told about him? We're told that this man, Boaz, is from the clan or the family of Elimelech, Naomi's deceased husband. And this becomes very important as the rest of the story unfolds. And then we're also told about Boaz that he was a man of standing. A man of standing. Now in this context, this means that he was a man of character, of status, and of good reputation. So, as a side note, we as readers are drawn into this story in chapter 2, introduced to this man Boaz. Pick up in verse 2. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, Go ahead, my daughter. So she went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. I remember I said that, that Ruth and Naomi as widows are in, in need of two very important things. And the first of which was food, basic provision. And so Ruth asked to go out. It's the, it's the barley harvest in Bethlehem. We're told this at the end of chapter 1. So Ruth asked Naomi, send me out. Let me go out and gather up some grain so that we'll have something to eat. And so Naomi sends her out. I don't know about you, I don't know if you spent much time in a field harvesting any type of produce. Uh, I have not. In fact, the closest that I've probably ever come to that uh, was as a child at my grandparents' house. Uh, they lived out in the country, and we would go out in the woods at the right time of year, and we'd pick blackberries together, and she would make a blackberry cobbler or something like that. Now, I know a lot of you probably have more experience in that area of life than I do, but I was able to do that. Because I was with my grandmother and I was on her property. But had I or any of the rest of us at some point in our lives just wandered onto someone else's property and started gathering up produce, we would at the very least get some funny looks uh, and quite possibly much more than that. Uh, Some ugly words, uh, if not um, further prosecution for trespassing. So this is an unusual picture here for us. We have these two widows coming back to Bethlehem. They just go out and they start gathering stuff up. But in the law of God that he had given to his people in the Old Testament, he had provided provision for the orphans, for the widows, for the foreigners. In other words, for the poor by commanding his people to leave some of the produce in the fields. In other words, they were to leave the corners of the fields unharvested. And after they harvested through the fields, they weren't to go back and gather up everything. They were to harvest through one time, and then anything left over was there for the poor. This was God's design. Now, based on other passages in the Old Testament, we don't know that the Israelites always carried this out. They weren't always faithful to this, allowing the poor to glean. Nevertheless, Ruth goes out to glean. Her and Naomi have no other choice. Now look back at verse 3, about halfway down where we left off. This is where things start to get good. And I mean really good for Ruth. She went out and started to glean. As it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. As it turned out, this is like us saying today, as luck would have it, 
or it just so happened that Ruth ended up in the field belonging to Boaz. And oh yeah, in case you missed it before, he's from the clan of Elimelech. The narrator does not want us to miss this. This is, this is not chance. Folks, this is the providence of God working behind the scenes, carefully working to bless and to provide for and care for Naomi and Ruth through these circumstances. And as I thought about that truth, as I reflected on that truth and God's providential care and guidance for his people, I could not help but to think of another family in, our, in this faith family uh, whom God showed uh, exceptional care and provision and guidance for just a few short years ago. But they can tell their story much better than I can. So if you would, hear from them for the next few minutes. Direct your attention to the screen. We, we started trying to have children, and that was a that was a definite challenge for us. And we had we're working with physicians, and we're working with all different types of specialists, and that was a very trying time for he and I. And we we finally reached a point. I know I did personally where I realized that I was trying to force something to happen that I desperately desired. So while we were still going through processes to uh, try and have a child we decided to pursue adoption. I remember I had a very crucial conversation with a friend of ours at a basketball game um, at Spain Park High School who said, you know, guess what? We're trying to adopt. And so at that moment, it was on my heart to ask a lot of questions and to seek out some answers. And I feel like that person was very obviously placed in my path at a very crucial time in my life. There were multiple challenges. There was, you know, you had to go through a home study. You had to be... Um, verified by the Department of Homeland Security and FBI, and you had to go through all this kind of stuff. And so we went through that, and then we still waited, no appointment, and the dossier was sent over, and we still had no appointment. And so through various circumstances, we happened to know a young man that was on the uh, board of directors of Lifeline, and he really was instrumental in helping us get that through. We received our appointment and waited until that date, and we're ready to leave for Ukraine. And we're very excited. It's a happy day. All the family is there. We did get on the plane. There was a spring storm, which threw our entire process off, and there was really a lot of panic. Um, we were at, a, at the Delta counter and being told that we would never make our appointment. Um, and a man walks up and just was placed there at the right moment in the middle of the night at midnight and he, he was able to work it out. And those things we don't believe just are coincidence. So we finally get out of Birmingham to Atlanta and then Atlanta and we end up to Philadelphia and sit on the runway for eight hours. And we have a specific time that we have to be at this appointment or we lose that appointment and you don't know if you'll ever get another one. So all the money's lost, whatever. So we're very nervous about that. We end up finally making it to New York about 1 a.m. Uh, the next day, I believe. And then we, we have to spend the night in New York. While we're in New York, we meet a lady from Ukraine trying to get back to Ukraine. And she buddies up with us and we just pray 
that we can somehow get another flight because we have this deadline. There's no choice. We've got to be there at a certain day. But Maria spoke no English. Just she was very confused with regards to what was happening as far as her travel arrangements. So we kind of adopted Maria. We got Maria a hotel room right next to ours. We spent the night as we were kind of grounded in New York and um, were able to help her get home. Of all the people that could have sat beside us on those long flights, um, I don't think it was coincidence that a Ukrainian woman was placed beside us where we could actually practice some language. When we get there, uh, Amanda has all of her clothes and that kind of thing. We have an appointment the next morning. That's how close it was. We, we arrive, it's nighttime. We arrive in the daytime getting our place that night. And uh, the next morning we have our appointment. I have no clothes besides what's on my back. So we did end up finding him some clothes and that was a, a quite a humorous experience. But we do go and meet with our, our the government agency the next day. We are, we're referred to a certain place and we go to that place. And uh, for various reasons, it, that one didn't work out. So now comes the real test in that we spent all of this money to get here. And we go to a place and, and we could not... We could not execute our plan at that place, so we had to come back to Kiev not knowing if we would have an appointment. And the weeks go by, and we still don't have an appointment. We don't have an appointment. We don't have an appointment. We're very upset. And then it was covered. The story got out in on the website of the New York Times, I believe it was. And that generated some movement behind the scenes with the government officials. There's a picture of, at that time, was uh, Christina and Ruslan, and then Danielle and Victoria. And we thought they were two separate sets of kids. And Amanda and I are sitting there, and our facilitator, Max, says, uh, or, or Sasha, says, no, all four. We eventually get another appointment, and um, they place the four pictures in front of us, and I remember that was about the fastest 15-minute conversation about how to raise children, that many children, that you could probably possibly ever have. And I remember being the hesitant one. I remember wanting to do it, but being overwhelmed by the sheer number of children and how to do raise children the way we wanted to raise children um, and just being able to manage that. And I remember Jerry sitting beside me on the sofa. They gave us 15 minutes. Um, and we were told that they never leave you in the room alone. Well, these, these people left us in the room alone to talk. And I remember Jerry looking at me and saying, um, how do you say no when God blesses you with twice as much as you prayed for? We adopted the kids. And, uh, you know, when you look back, it was perfectly done because they had just crossed the threshold of time in the orphanage to be adopted according to Ukraine rules. Had it been four weeks earlier, or when I wanted it to happen, or Amanda wanted it to happen, we never met these kids. And at that moment, it became very, very clear that this was what we were meant to do. That all the struggles that we had been through with the infertility, and all the frustration, and all the disappointments, had just been in preparation of preparing our heart for this moment. And God needed us to meet these kids. Not so much for them, probably but for us, and it has changed life. No doubt in our mind that those children were meant for us, 
and that we were meant for those children and that the money was there when we needed it. The situations were there to prepare our hearts, to make sure that we were ready for the challenges that we were going to face. And um, we knew that we were, as, as we were in country, we were running out of money. Um, and so things just happened perfectly to get us home. All the while, Jerry and I had been frustrated over and over and over about the speed of the process. And on the back end of it, and even in the midst of it, you realize that the process was perfect to begin with. It's the perfect divine timing of God. And it's going to happen in His time, which is the perfect time. And a lot of times we're so simple that we don't realize that it's always his perfect time. What we learned was that, you know, faith, faith in God and that in his will will always have perfect timing. And that regardless of what you want and what you desire, that when you rely on him, things work out. And I think my true test was that um, through prayer, I learned to not pray for what I want, but pray for God's will. Friends, the God of the Bible, the God that we serve, is a good God. Thank you, Jerry and Amanda and Olivia and Christian and Daniel and Vicka for allowing us to hear and rejoice in God's goodness through your story. God's unfailing love shines brightest in the midst of apparent hopelessness. And just as God was working behind the scenes to work out the details in this adoption for Jerry and Amanda and the kids, God was also working out details behind the scenes to bless and to care for Ruth and Naomi in Ruth chapter 2. Look at verse 4. Just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they called back. So this is another example of Boaz's upstanding character. He greets them in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, Yahweh. But in case we missed it in verse 3, where they just happen, where Ruth just happened to show up in Boaz's field, just then, this is like us saying all of the sudden, Boaz himself shows up on the scene. Some translations say, look or behold, Boaz. The narrator does not want us to miss this, folks. God is working behind the scenes to bring Ruth in contact with this man of upstanding character named Boaz. The picture here is incredible. All right, look at verse 5. We're going to have to pick up the speed here a little bit. We're going to cover some, some ground here uh, fairly quickly. But picking up in verse 5, the rest of the story, Boaz asked the foreman of his harvesters, whose young woman is that? The foreman replied, she is the Moabitess who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She went into the field and has worked steadily from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, verse 8, My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with my servant girls. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the girls. I have told the men not to touch you and whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men 
have filled. Verse 10, at this she bowed down with her face to the ground. She exclaimed, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Verse 13, may I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have given me comfort and have spoken kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servant girls. So the story just keeps getting better and better. I heard one pastor one time uh, liken the events of Ruth chapter 2 to a chick flick. And some of you guys may know what I'm talking about because, guys, we've all seen a chick flick or two or three. Maybe when you hear the book of Ruth, you think, oh, that's a chick flick. That's a girl story. But this is what I mean by this. Because when we're sitting in a chick flick, most of the time, uh, us guys are watching the story until we begin to see some things unfold that just really don't depict, at least not in our minds, real life. It's like the more the story goes on, the more unrealistic certain things get. And so at some point in the story, we kind of sit back and we're just ready to say something. We, we can't believe what's, what's happening is really happening. I mean, come on. And, and we look around at that point, you know, we're either ready to, to say something or, or to, to, to zone out or to turn it off or to ask for something else. And we look around and every female in the room is either teary-eyed or beaming as if the greatest thing just unfolded. Guys and girls, men and women, what happens in the Bible, what happens in Ruth chapter 2, far surpasses anything we might see in a chick flick because things happen under the providential care and guidance of God that do not happen apart from divine intervention. And the story just keeps getting better and better. Look back at verse 5. Boaz is introduced to, to Ruth. He sees this woman in the field and he says, whose young woman is that? Who is that? Check her out. Now notice that he says, he doesn't say, who is that? He says, whose is that? To who does she belong to? Who's her husband? Of what family? Further highlighting the tension that she doesn't belong to anyone. Because the reality is her husband has died, her father-in-law has died, her brother-in-law has died, and she has no children. In verse 6, notice the intentional repetition of her nationality. The foreman says to Boaz, she is the Moabitess who came back from Moab. The narrator does not want us to miss it. God does not want us to miss it, that this is that foreign woman from Moab. And then verse 8 Boaz confronts Ruth, and he tells her to stay in his field, not to go anywhere else, because in his field, she won't be harmed. He tells her to stay with, with his servant girls, and that he's told his men not to touch him, implying that women, especially probably foreign women in that day, were taking a risk 
by being alone in another man's field. But Boaz tells his men, don't, don't harm her, don't touch her, don't bother her. And as if that's not enough, he goes a step further in verse nine and he tells his men to allow her to drink from the water jars that they had filled. Now this might not sound like a big deal to us, but in that day, water jars were often filled by women for men. And at best, this foreign widow could have found herself filling up water for these men. And now all of a sudden, she is drinking from the water jars that they fill for her. And in verse 10, she's, she responds. She's shocked. Ruth cannot believe this. She's shocked and rightly so. And she bows down with her face to the ground before Boaz and asks why she has received such favor for him. Now the picture here, she's not worshiping Boaz, but she's recognizing that he's a man of status and she's not. And so she's paying proper respect. She realizes that the favor that he has already shown her is not normal, is not deserved by who she is. In verse 11, Boaz responds to her and he highlights her character and he says, I've heard all about you, the way that you've treated your mother-in-law great and you've left your land and your father and your mother and you've come to live here and to help provide for your mother-in-law. And we also get the hint here that by being faithful to her mother-in-law, Naomi, she's also being faithful to Naomi's God, the God of Israel. And we heard a hint of this back in chapter 1, verse 16, when, when Naomi was urging Ruth to stay in Moab while she left and came back to Bethlehem. And this was, this was Ruth's response. Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. And so now... Ruth is experiencing the abundant provision associated with her faithfulness to God. And it just keeps getting better. Look at verse 14. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come over here, have some bread, and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. So Boaz's generosity continues even further when he invites this Moabite woman to sit down and have a meal with him and his men. And as if that's not enough generosity and enough hospitality, he takes it a step further once again. And the picture here in verse 14 is that he serves her. Look back at verse 14. It's come over here. It says, when she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. This is a picture of service, of extending food to her, providing for her. And Ruth herself just reminded us in verse 13 that she doesn't even have the status of one of Boaz's servant girls, yet here Boaz is acting as servant to her. You catching on to the picture here. You see the picture that God is working behind the scenes through this man, Boaz, to bless Ruth and through Ruth, her mother-in-law, Naomi, abundantly. And it goes even further. Verse 15. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, even if she gathers among the sheaves, don't embarrass her. 
Rather, pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up. And don't rebuke her. Verse 17, so Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered, and it amounted to about an ephah. She carried it back to town, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. And so Boaz takes the picture a step further, and he commands his men not just to not harm her, but to actually go out of their way, to go above and beyond, to provide as much as she can possibly gather in a day by taking some of the stalks out and throwing them back on the ground behind them so that she can come along behind and pick them up. And we're told here that she gathers about an ephah, or three-fifths of a bushel, or better yet, 30 to 50 pounds of prepared barley grain. 30 to 50 pounds, and then she takes it back to town, back to Bethlehem by herself, and shares it with her mother-in-law, Naomi. Now, the picture that I have here is of this widow carrying like a 40-pound bag of fertilizer or seed or feed or whatever by herself all the way back to town and says, Naomi, look what I got today. Now, to put this in perspective, it's believed that the average wages for a male worker for a day in that time would have been one to two pounds of prepared barley grain. And this woman from Moab comes home with 40 pounds of it. And Naomi is shocked. And finish the story here. Notice at the end of chapter 1, what was Naomi's response to her greeting in Bethlehem? Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. The Lord has, been, has had his hand against me. I went away full and he brought me back empty. Now notice her response at the end of chapter 2 and verse 19 when Ruth comes home with such provision. Her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our kinsmen redeemers. Then Ruth the Moabite said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until I finish harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with his girls. Because in someone else's field, you might be harmed. Verse 23. So Ruth stayed close to the servant girls of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvest were finished. In other words, another two to three months. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Now don't miss the incredible demonstration of provision and care and kindness that this man Boaz shows Ruth which is only a picture, only a demonstration of the greater love and care and provision that God is showing Ruth and Naomi in this book. Remember that I said that they were in need of two things, food and family. And the first need, food, and lots of it has been provided for. Enough to probably last them for months. 
And we have another glimmer of hope here at the end of chapter 2 that the greater need of family might possibly be provided for as well. Verse 20, Naomi said, He is a close relative, one of our kinsmen redeemers. Now, this is not a word that we use today. This is not a concept that we practice today. And it will be further developed in chapters 3 and 4. But suffice it for now to say that a kinsman redeemer was the nearest adult male relative whose purpose was to redeem or restore persons, property, or lineage. And so not only is Boaz the knight in shining armor who provides physically food, provision for Ruth and Naomi, but we have the hint here that he may redeem their family line as well. Now I want to back up in conclusion here. Because we've covered a lot of details. There's detail after detail after detail in this story that unfolds in order to paint this picture of God's very specific care for these people. But I want to back up and take a wide-angle view and try to draw some implications for us today. So in this story so far in Ruth chapter 1 and 2, we have been introduced to two widows, Naomi and her foreign yet loving daughter-in-law, Ruth, neither of which have any children of their own. Their situation was desperate, was hopeless, and without divine intervention, they were left to live a life of loneliness and despair and of want. But little did they know that God was working behind the scenes and that God Almighty, the God that they served, is far greater and higher and wiser and stronger than any and all circumstances and situations, and he desired to shower undeserved love and blessing on their lives for his glory. God's unfailing love shines brightest in the midst of apparent hopelessness, hopelessness, excuse me, and you and I this morning, if we know this book, we recognize that our spiritual situation has been a lot like Ruth and Naomi's physical situation. We ought to be able to readily identify with Ruth the Moabite because like her, we were once hopeless. Foreigners, as Gentiles, strangers to the covenant of God's love. Headed down a road of judgment and punishment because of our sin, yet in his providence, God Almighty had better and higher and wiser plans for us. Plans that involved him coming to us and offering his son as a sinless and perfect sacrifice on our behalf so that we could experience forgiveness and atonement of sins and life everlasting with him. God's unfailing love shines brightest in the midst of apparent hopelessness. I want to conclude with two implications based off the truths of this passage for us today. Number one is this, that we ought to, based off the the truths of God's word in this story and in lives represented around this 
this room and around this world, we ought to trust fully in the sovereign will and timing of God in our lives. Most often, we only see the obvious. We only see what's happening here and now, but we serve a God who goes before us and who works before, behind, and beyond every circumstance that we face in life. Praise God that that's the kind of God that we serve. So that's number one, trust fully in the sovereign will and timing of God. And number two, we as the people of God are to like Ruth in her display of kindness to Naomi and like Boaz in his display of kindness to Ruth, we are to display the character of God to the people in this world. And we see this picture over and over again in the Old Testament that the people of God are to show the world what God is like. And we serve a God who cares for the poor and the outcast and the downtrodden and the hurting in society. And because God Almighty cares for them, you and I as the people of God must care for them. We in this community are a people that are affluent materially. But I also want to remind us this morning that if you've trusted in Christ for salvation, if you've gone from death to life, then you are also affluent spiritually. And so let's be known as a people of abundance that share that abundance with a lost and dying world. Let's be known for people who work tirelessly to spread the love and care of God with people all around us because we serve a God who himself brought us out of spiritual bondage and poverty. Praise God. Praise God that we serve a God whose unfailing love shines brightest in the midst of apparent hopelessness. Let's pray together.